Welcome back to Brain Biohacking with your host, Kayla Barnes. We dive into all things optimal health, optimal brain health, nutrition, peak performance, cognitive excellence, biohacking, longevity, and so much more. Andrew, it is such a pleasure to have you here with me today. Hi, Kyla. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Um, well, actually, before the podcast, we were just chatting about your recent visit to Cleveland, which was amazing to show you around and not to speak too early, but could be a future Pernuvo home. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed the visit. And to be honest, just it's exciting to run into folks that are keen to bring us to new markets. I mean, you know, our mission really is to, you know, bring this to as many places as we can. So as many people can benefit from preventive screening. Absolutely. So today we're going to dive deep into the technology, but let's just start with what, what is Pernuvo and why did you guys decide to start using MRI technology in this way? So Pernuvo is a clinical quality, um, multi-parametric MRI scan. And I'm going to break this down. Um, that in an hour enables us to screen for cancer and about 500 other medical conditions. Um, and uh, why we decided to do this was uh, historically we have tried as, as a medical profession, tried and failed to do screening. We tried with CT uh, and the problem with CT was it involves radiation and it's also um, not very accurate for soft tissue. Uh, so it, we, it often missed things. And when it found things, it tended to not know what it was. So there was a lot of unnecessary follow-up. Then folks tried to do this with MRI uh, and MRI is a much better technology for a soft tissue, but it's quite slow. And, uh, and so we weren't able to do uh, clinical diagnostic scans in an acceptable amount of time, in the amount of time that you'd want to sit in an MRI machine. And really the sort of core catalyst here were um, new MRI technology, hardware and software that enables us to image people around three to four times faster than the existing equipment that's out there. And all of a sudden a scan, a diagnostic quality scan that would take three hours now can be done in under an hour. And that really enabled uh, this space. Amazing. I think this is a good place to actually kind of tell my story as well about MRI. So anyone that's just listening and wondering, um, maybe you've even seen it on my Instagram, what this MRI technology is. So a little bit of my backstory, I've had quite a few full body MRIs from a variety of different places. So I, at this point, feel pretty confident that I understand a little bit, at least what a good, really good MRI is from the experience to the interpretation, to the results versus an MRI that doesn't have as good or as accurate of results or interpretation. So this full body MRI, yes, it's a subset of imaging, right? Um, and you are in there for about, is it 53 minutes, Andrew? It's 51 minutes for women and 53 minutes for men. Okay. So between 51 and 53 minutes, um, you're in a scanner and it's quite spacious. I did not feel claustrophobic at all. I, probably many people don't because you have quite a bit of space. I love that you guys can watch a show. You guys have made it so you can like watch television, which is really rare in an MRI machine or listen to a podcast. And you do this, what we call here at Live, this preventative diagnostics. And we often refer patients to Pernubo as part of our executive health. 
But I think the question would be, why would you get this scan? And as you mentioned, it does this pre-screening for over 500 different types of chronic conditions and cancer. And while you're in there, it's an enjoyable experience. But when you get out, the amazing thing is, is that your team, and I can't wait for you to talk about this, but your team, it was the best MRI experience I've ever had. As I mentioned, I've had several. And what has happened in the past is some things that we may think that your team knows is normal processes of let's say aging or, you know, normal, normal situations that you can see on MRI technology with other scans, either a, they missed it or B they kind of gave me a more frightening result. And I'll go into more detail on what that means later, but, um, what is it that's so different giving that story? Because my experience was incredible. The results, I loved how you guys made it so simple. There was no like fear tactics, which I think could possibly make MRI pre-screening a little bit controversial right now. Um, but what technology yeah. do you use that can get a such high quality images and B, you know, really accurate results? Yeah, so I think we can go back to that word multi-parametric and sort of break down what that means. So um, MRI is a great, and what makes MRI such a powerful technology is that we are able to image for hydrogen in the body. And we have hydrogen as part of, it's a fundamental building block of lots of different things that our bodies are composed of. So by sort of measuring, by altering sort of the tissue weight that we're looking for we're able to filter for blood or for fat or for proteinaceous tissue um, or for fluid and when we do this three-dimensionally in the body it's almost like where we're sort of for the, for the instagram generation it's like instagram filters you know we're filtering for each of these things and we layer them on top of each other and we can look at any one three-dimensional pixel in your body let's say a little pixel in your liver. And based on how it looks on all these different filters, we're able to really accurately identify what it is. So that's what multi-parametric means. So it's got moving away from like a two-dimensional black and white picture to a series of pictures that we can then sort of layer on top of each other. The, as part of this, there's one sequence in particular that's really important. And this is a sequence that's called diffusion. And I'm going to talk about it, try and explain it as concisely as I can, because it's just such a powerful sequence. Diffusion is a functional imaging sequence. So it's looking at the tissue and it's actually looking for places in our bodies where fluid, the, the flow of fluid is restricted. Now, um, uh, our bodies are comprised 50% of fluid. So usually, actually, there's a lot of fluid moving everywhere, but there are certain places where it doesn't move. And one of those places is typically a solid tumor. So cancer is a cluster of cells that are growing really fast and they tend to get bundled really tightly together and water is getting trapped. And this diffusion sequence really sort of lights that up. Now, not everything that gets lit up is a cancer, but almost all cancers light it up. And so, th so this is why women are asked to feel, you know, when, you, when they say for a woman, feel your lump, your breast for lumps, not every lump is going to be a cancer, but every cancer does feel like a lump. It's harder than the surrounding tissue. And that's because it's more dense. And so we're using MRI to do what a woman does with her hands, but we're able to do it at much greater sensitivity. And of course, throughout the entire body. So organs that you, you normally can't feel your pancreas or you can't sort of 
palpate your lungs to see if there's anything there. So we're able to do that digitally with the MRI. And that's what's really powerful about these scans. And when I did your MRI versus other MRIs, something that was starkly different was the breathing patterns. I had never been asked to do a series of breath work during an MRI before, even a full body MRI. Um, so what, what's the point of that? What are you doing there? Yeah, well, mainly it's actually so that we get good pictures of your abdomen. Um, so when you're breathing, your diaphragm is moving up and down and that's pushing and pulsating uh, the organs in your abdomen. So we actually do it to make sure that we get um, very clear images and of the various organs there. We're able to see the colon very um, concisely. And so that's why we do that. Um, I, we hope in the future we won't need to, but uh, at least as it relates to the current state of the technology, it enables us to take clearer pictures, be more accurate. I mean, you're going to be in there anyway. So I actually felt good about doing this series of breathing because I felt like, A, there was really, yeah, there was a purpose behind it. Got some breath work in while I was doing the scan. So yeah, I, I think it's really amazing. Um, when you guys first started to have this concept of prevention or preventative diagnostics, talk to me about what happened. Did you guys get any pushback? What did the medical community say? Yeah, it's been a really interesting journey, actually. And I have a lot of um, sympathy for the medical community because, uh, you know, every doctor that we interact with is tremendously busy. Uh, they have a lot of, um, you know, it's it's hard to stay up to date on, you know, the intricacies of what's happening in a certain technology that may not be part of their day-to-day -day job. Um, but I think, you know, so we, we work really hard to educate physicians and we have hundreds of physicians that refer us patients. Uh, but oftentimes, you know, the, the way that relationship works is they'll come in and experience themselves and they didn't realize just how far this technology had advanced. And then they end up referring typically their spouse and then their patients. So it's a process, of, you know, it's a, it's a process of evolution um, people are talking about whole body now a lot more than they were two or three years ago. A lot of physicians are starting to really understand how this might add to their clinical practice. And the patient and the physicians that refer us patients routinely, I think the the when we ask them why, the biggest upside they see is it enables them to spend less time diagnosing disease and chasing symptoms down and more time actually working with their patients to help improve their health outcomes. And that's really why they decided to become physicians in the first place. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So when I posted um, my experience, I got quite a few views, but one of the biggest questions or let's say commentary that I kind of saw was why would you have a scan of this nature in someone that's not presenting any symptoms? What would your reply to that be? Well, I think it's, it's an interesting sort of observation because I think all of us, including physicians, know that uh, in the, during the early stages of disease, typically that a patient is asymptomatic. So cancer being a great example, I mean, you won't, part of the reason why pancreatic cancer is so dangerous and is considered kind of like a terminal diagnosis in the ordinary course of healthcare is because you don't have symptoms until that cancer is already very advanced. Um, and so uh, it, it's an interesting point of view, but you know, it's, it speaks to the fundamental nature of our health system, which is very reactive. And 
um, when you sort of approach this in a transformative way, it involves changing the way we think about healthcare um, very fundamentally. And uh, and again, slowly physicians are coming on board, but oftentimes, you know, it takes time. And when you, how many scans have you guys done so far? Uh, we've done tens of thousands now um, across our nine clinics. So we're done a tremendous amount actually we sort of have we're learning a lot about the early stage of disease and i think one of the most exciting things is being able to really peel back the diagnostic window um, for things that are not only life-threatening but even sort of understanding how our bodies are aging and being able to identify that early so that we can just modify the risk factors in our life. So make lifestyle interventions rather than ever having to arrive at a point where we need a medical intervention. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you guys see, so one of my, I guess we'll say negative points on my Pranuvo full body MRI was my spine. You know, I've spent so many years now over a computer working. Um, is this something that you guys are seeing a lot of like the even younger people with, you know, just spine issues. And it's a, you know, it says that I have a little bit of degeneration, but for me, it's a great wake up call because I immediately called my chiropractor and I am going to be making mi big shifts this year in my mobility and posture. Yeah, no, we're, it's actually really been quite scary, particularly as we've entered, we started in Vancouver and I would say the average age of a patient there, I believe is something like 52 years old. And as we expanded across the US, we went into markets like Los Angeles or Silicon Valley, where maybe the average age was getting into like the late 30s or early 40s. And we started Im even imaging people in their 20s. And what we found actually um, were that younger people were presenting with spines that made them look like they were look like they were 10, 15, sometimes 20 years older than their biological age. So it was, it was kind of a scary wake-up call, definitely for them, but also for us as a society. I mean, I think we have a we have an epidemic of potential MSK issues coming down the road when we all hit our 50s and 60s. And as we all know, mobility is just so important for longevity. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a big to-do on my list. Can you go through some of the body systems that, I mean, I love the way that you present data. That's the another incredible part about Pranuvo versus other MRIs. You know, a lot of times you get a really complicated, you know, I've, I have like CDs of MRIs at home. I mean, that's not much, that's not much help to me. A, I don't even have a, you know, CD drive and B, how are you supposed to um, read these? So you guys make it really simple to walk through the systems. Can you walk through some of the symptoms and maybe like point out some of the top findings that you guys might see? Yeah, it's uh, well to start with. By the way, we we're building something where really the customer is the patient, not necessarily the health system. So we really want to provide you with context so that you can, uh, where you need to engage with the health system, from the point of view of being informed. And if you don't need to engage with the health system, you have information about how you can modify your lifestyle so that you know if there's anything going on, you can really address it early. Um, I think what we see really falls into two categories. We have, there's the things that people come in worried that they're going to find, which are life-threatening conditions like cancer, 
which we can see for most solid cancers at stage one or aneurysm, and then a whole long tail of very unlikely things that might, let's say, affect longevity. Uh, and then the second category are wear and tear or early stages of what might end up being chronic disease. And those could be things like uh, fatty liver disease or small vessel ischemia um, or MSK issues, as we spoke about, um, or um, maybe inflammatory issues in the digestive system, uh, which, as we know, sort of inf inflammation is so is like a risk factor for um, cancer down the road. So, um, so those are everyone learns something. <laughs> That's almost a guarantee. It's a rare person I can think of. I could probably count on one hand, you know, the number of people I've literally got a completely clean bill of health. Um, everyone learns something, but the most important thing here is that the vast majority of us early and, and really that's what we hope for so that you can make the adjustments that you need to live a long and healthy life. Absolutely. So just from my recollection, I think, so you obviously have the brain imaging, you have the muscular, musculoskeletal system imaging, you have the cardiovascular system. What else? Oh, the reproductive system. What else am I missing that you guys go through like piece by piece? Uh, I digestive system, endocrine system. Um, it's easier to describe what we don't cover probably than what we do cover. Okay. Um, I would say like the, the primary, there's kind of two things that we don't cover. Um, the first, as it relates to sort of our endocrine system, we can look at your pituitary gland or your thyroid and we can look for any anatomical abnormalities. But obviously there are some things that you really need to do a blood test to see you know, how those glands are functioning. So um, there are still reasons to go and do comprehensive blood every so often. The second thing that we don't see is we don't directly image the heart in tremendous detail. So we can't tell you what your risk of a heart attack is. Um, uh, we can tell, we can identify secondary damage from say cardiovascular disease but if you're worried about heart attack, there are uh, there are some there's at least a CT based sort of calcium score that we encourage people to do. So so that's really those are really the only limitations. There are certain things that you need blood tests to look at, and then uh, if you if you feel like you have a higher risk of a cardiovascular potential cardiovascular issue, then there are then this test probably is not right for you just because your heart is always beating and your lungs are always moving and there's just too much movement um, for us to be able to see it clearly in the same way you can with other modalities. Great. So one big question I was also asked, um, and we spoke about this a little bit when you were here, but I think there's a lot of confusion around um, radiation and MRIs. So can you talk, can you speak about that? What, if any radiation exposure are you receiving in this full body MRI because you in, are there for a long time? Uh, yeah, so there's no radiation. Um, what you are exposed to is EF radiation. So that's essentially we put into your body the equivalent of AM radio. Um, so uh, it has no known scientific, um, at least scientifically based sort of uh, kind of contraindication, should we say. And um, and uh, it's sort of like the, in terms of energy in your body, it's probably the equivalent of speaking on a cell phone for two or three hours. Uh, so it's a very, very gentle um, technique. Um, unlike CT, 
uh, which involves radiation or a contrast-based exam. We don't use contrast. So where, where you often are being injected with sort of a heavy metal so you can see it better on uh, MRI or another contrast agent to see it better on CT. So it's a very safe exam. You could do it as frequently as you need to. I'm very happy that we got to put that to rest, at least for anyone that is listening. So no radiation in the MRI. Um, nope. Very good. So what age are you seeing? I mean, obviously the thing I love is you guys are really kind of flipping the data set for what healthy brain should look like, what healthy body should look like. Because as we've spoken about before, typically when you get an MRI, there's an indication they're looking for something, they're expecting something to be there that is unwell or out of the ordinary. So what age are you kind of seeing people start these? What age do you recommend start starting to get Pernuvo scans? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. So we um, generally don't image people under the age of 18 unless they have a risk factor. And then generally not that much under the age of 18, because as you know, you have to be able to follow breathing directions. Um, yes. And some kids are a little bit uh, distracted, shall we say, um, when it comes to following directions. Um, and then the oldest patient I think we have imaged is in their 90s. Uh, and I got a really nice message from a woman in her mid-80s just saying, hey, thanks for the scan. I'm going to be in next year. You know, it's never too late to do to engage in preventive health. Um, so, uh, so we get all ages. As a general rule, as you can imagine, the older you get, the more likely we are to find problems. But also the younger you are, the more likely, particularly in the case of cancer, that it might uh, be more aggressive. So, you know, every sort of, if you have average risk, you know, there's really no reason why you wouldn't get a scan, you know, as, as soon as you're able to. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, if we were just to kind of throw rough numbers out there, like, do you see a lot of 20 year olds right now or more so like getting into thirties, forties, fifties? We see a lot of, we see a lot of 20 year olds buy it for their parents um, <laughs> quite frequently, which is really nice. Um, we actually see a lot of people buy it for other people, which is kind of interesting. It's an interesting psychological observation that we're, we are maybe more able to identify people around us that could benefit from the scan than realizing that it might benefit ourselves. Um, and, uh, but I would say that again, on average, most of the people we image are in their 30 from say 35 to 65, um, you know, around 35, we either start to feel a little bit less invincible or we start to have families and we then realize that we need to be there as long as possible for other people. Um, and then, um, and then, uh, you know, we still get people that come in their seventies or eighties. So, um, it's a pretty wide range. What about frequency once a year, or twice a year? What do you, what would your recommendation be? Um, uh, it's a, also a hard one to answer if I'm being honest. Um, the best analogy we have of a screening program is mammogram and they generally recommend every two years for average risk. And that, and the idea behind that is they've done thousands of uh, millions of mammograms. And if a cancer starts the day after your mammogram, it would still be stage one two years later, um, which is if, if you're going to have cancer, that's when we want to find it. 
Um, so we, but we give everyone a recommendation based on their, what we find and their medical history. Yeah, that's a great point. I love that kind of in each section, as you go through your report, it gives you a next step, whether, uh, whether that be really nothing or monitoring it or following up. Um, that's a really important piece to actually stay on the topic of breast cancer. So mammograms are the, uh, you know, standard medical suggestion, but from what I understand, if you have more dense breast tissue or something of that nature, MRI could actually be a much better option in terms of breast cancer screening. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, the space is kind of evolving, to be honest. Um, I, I think there's a realization now that mammogram is not good at seeing through this dense glandular tissue you have typically when you're premenopausal. Um, and so increasingly, last time I checked, there was 15 states where insurance companies were starting to cover breast MRI uh, as an alt, as an either an adjunct or an alternative to um, mammogram. Our view is that they're complementary technologies. Uh, MRI is more able to see through that dense glandular tissue, but mammogram can see early calcification what you what is sort of considered stage zero cancer so these two technologies really work sort of uh, hand in hand to be honest um and so we would not recommend it as a replacement but as a as a um sort of adjunct to normal mammogram screening that makes a lot of sense um can you walk us through some of the public stories? Because if you're listening to this podcast and haven't done a ton of research on Pranuvo, you guys have had some pretty incredible stories. Can you share one with us? Oh, wow. So I think the one that most people have um, heard recently was Maria Menounos, who um, is a pretty well-known um, celebrity, uh, particularly in the health space, um, who we were like fortunate to find a... Um, early stage pancreatic tumor and uh, she spoke about this uh, publicly so um so i we can speak about it but it was really sort of a life-changing diagnosis for her and it was a diagnosis that was missed in sort of routine standard of care diagnostic screening so um so i guess like a cautionary tale a little bit um but but she was very lucky we have found um gosh we've found probably several thousand cancers now since we got started um uh the overwhelming majority are stage one um we found interestingly um uh, almost every lung cancer we've found was in a non-smoker um yeah. uh typically a female non-smoker quite young and actually in the literature now there's a lot of people trying to understand why we're seeing this this sort of increase in uh, lung cancer in non-smokers. Um, we are seeing, uh, uh, you know, I, I would say another cancer that we've caught um, more frequently we would like is ovarian cancer. Uh, ovarian cancer, as you would know, is uh, often caught very late. Um, some part of that is because women feel pain routinely in their abdomen anyhow, so might not think it unusual and the medical system are used to women feeling pain in their abdomen. So also um, may not 
push for additional testing. Um, but we've been lucky to catch most of those at stage one. Um, I don't know. There are so many stories at this point in time, if I'm being totally honest. Um, but it's really heartwarming for us. I mean, it's why we do this is, is the opportunity to really have a positive impact on people's lives. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I feel blessed because I, you know, I'm the CEO. I'm not a doctor. I feel like I get all of the upside of, you know, the reason why people become doctors without having gone have, having gone to medical school myself. It's just so tremendously rewarding to have a positive impact on people and and to help them with their health journey. Absolutely. And I I couldn't agree more. I mean, you guys are truly changing the world because many times, you know, we've been in this quote unquote war on cancer for a very long time, we've spent tons and tons of money on it and resources. And unfortunately, it, it doesn't seem like we have a great solution because it's so each cancer is so unique and the treatments we, we do have treatments, but you know, if you can catch it early, then you're the best defense is a good offense, I guess, you know, so you can understand and be really proactive. And I, obviously the earlier, the better in terms of any chronic disease. Um, so I think what you guys are doing is super, super important. And to go back to my story really quick with the, when I made a comment about you guys knowing things that other MRI companies don't, I won't say where I got it, but long story short, I got a full body MRI um, preventative in an executive health type type of manner. And they found these small white matter changes on my brain. And I've had a couple of concussions, things of that nature. I was a very athletic kid. And um, they made a, you know, it seemed as uh, it was a really big deal. So I spent the next year kind of uh, seeing a couple neurologists that I knew getting other brain imaging, several different MRIs of the brain and a couple, one just completely missed it. Didn't see any of the white matter changes at all. So the first one kind of worried me. The second one didn't see it at all. The third one saw it and realized it was nothing finally. But then by the time I got my fourth one, I had a conversation with you when I came to New York and did it. And I let you know, I said, Hey, I have these, you know, little white matter changes. There's a few of them. And you told me that basically you see this all the time. So you guys are developing this data set so that people, because I would just assume that people don't really know exactly what many healthy people's brains of my age look like. So they just assumed mm -hmm. it has to be wrong. So I think that's such an important thing that you guys are doing as well. Well, it actually is a really important um, uh, sort of um, mindset shift, actually, even as, you know, even in the radiology that we do, we approach the way you approach radiology in an asymptomatic screening patient is different to how you would approach it in a diagnostic context when someone is symptomatic. And most radiologists spend most of their time in a diagnostic context. And so they'll look at a set of images and they'll assume, in, you know, subconsciously in the back of their head, okay, because I'm looking at this thing, this is a patient that presents with symptoms most likely. And so my interpretation is going to be different. And I think as we learn and image more and more, I, I don't want to say normal patients. I mean, it's sort of normal in the context of the health system where you're sort of normal until you have advanced disease. <laughs> Obviously yeah. there are things happening, but as we sort of image these patients, we're learning more and more about, you know, the idiosyncrasies of the body 
And these little white matter spots for people that don't know what they are is just a, a little bit of brain tissue, a very tiny amount that somehow lost a bit of blood supply. And that could be for, there are there are sort of uh, disease-related processes that can make that happen, but also we see it in so many people, we know it could just be, you know, just for some unknown reason. And you're allowed a few of these every decade. And uh, that's totally fine. Um, uh, and, and, and it's not going to affect your brain. Your brain has tremendous plasticity and a lot of redundancy. And, uh, and, um, we just happen to see these in the brain. Probably we find them in other parts of the body too, but the brain, it, you know, it, it, when it loses, uh, blood supply, that tiny, tiny bit of tissue sort of atrophies and we can see that, um, but it's clinically insignificant. Yeah. Yeah. So the moral of my entire story was a, just to be transparent, but also really just saying that the the team matters, the way that they're looking at it matters, all of these things, and then the experience and, and the information that they have all matter. So very exciting. And I would love to hear, so what do you think the future of this technology is? Where's Pranuvo going? I know you talked a lot about AI when you were here too. So what does it all look like in the future? Yeah, I mean, for me, AI is like a really, really important enabler. It's not the destination, but it's sort of part of how we get there. For me, the real, de the sort of destination to speak first about that is I really, if I think about the mission of the company, in some ways, it's to redefine our understanding of disease. Because our understanding of disease as patients is so bound in the context of the health system that diagnoses things late. So if I tell you, you have a disease, instantly you think, oh my God, that's a horrible thing. You know, it's going to affect my life. It might be expensive to treat. It may be not very successful, the treatment. And all of these things are, they're in your head because of the way the health system works. I would love, you know, success for us is a future where disease is, it's just like routine maintenance. Uh, yes, we find things, but we find it early. Um, we can just adjust our lifestyle. We don't need to take drugs or necessarily go to the, you know, engage with the health system. It's inexpensive. It's likely to be successfully treated um, or the outcome sort of altered. So I think like the whole definition of disease needs to change. You know, um, I remember, you know, I grew up watching Star Trek and these things and, you know, they'd, you know, someone would break their leg and they'd just go into the med bay and then wave a wand and you'd be you'd be fixed. And no one ever thought that, that was a big deal. And I would love that to be the case for anything that could sort of affect us because we're catching it so early. Now, what how is AI really helpful in this? Is um a lot of people focus on the role of AI in diagnosing things and sort of replacing radiologists. And that may or may not happen. I think it will take some time. Um, but what's really exciting to me is, you know, AI is able to pick up on really subtle changes that are not really obvious um, when you're a radiologist, little tiny changes in the curve angle of your spine or in the liver fat percentage of your liver, um, or even be able to count these white matter lesions in the brain and things like this in a way that radiologists can't. And I think that's going to really help us expand our understanding of these early disease process and really help us, you know, help us in that process of redefining disease. So, uh, and all, you know, we're doing a lot of active research in the use of AI. And a lot of that is based around this idea of quantifying your health, being able to be much more precise about 
anything that we can measure. And some of that is going to be very, very clinically useful in identifying, we believe, in identifying sort of early, early stages of disease and really helping you get a really clear picture of what you need to focus on about your health. Absolutely. I think it's incredible. Um, I just had mine a few months, like a month or so ago when you guys opened your New York location, but it's definitely going to be a part of my, I mean, I'm, I'm in this industry, so of course I want to do things like this, but it'll definitely be a part of my health optimization. And to be honest, just, you know, longevity program, because some people, I think they want to operate with not knowing, but we do for sure know that the best way is to get ahead of it or attack it, you know, at full force. If something does go wrong, I'm just the type of person I want to know every detail and then I want to fix it. I don't want to operate under this idea that I'm super healthy and I'm going to live forever and just kind of, you know, have my head in the sand. I want to know what's going on with my body. I feel so grateful and we are blessed to live in a time that Pranuvo exists. And I just hope other people start to adopt that mindset as well. Well, I can understand the mindset. I mean, this mindset of not wanting to know. I mean, I, you know, I can recognize a little bit of that in myself. I think it's, you know, I, and I've even heard doctors say, you know, like maybe people shouldn't do this thing because they won't know how to deal with the consequences or it might be too upsetting or something. But, you know, I, my general response is, well, that's not really, that's the pro, that's a problem with the health system. <laughs> Again, it comes back to, like it freaks us out because we have created a system where almost the only disease we diagnose is advanced disease. If that wasn't the case, we wouldn't get freaked out. So it's sort of a it's sort of a circular logic. You have to sort of you have to offer and make available technologies like what we have at Pranuvo. And over time, that's going to change our understanding of disease. And it's going to change how scary some of that sounds. Um, so that, that's sort of my thought process on it. That's what I tell myself. Um, because, you know, I think every one of us has that little voice in our head in one way or another, uh, however irrational we might think it, you know, in the cold light of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can understand that. I've just always been obsessed with getting all the data and wherever it leads me, it leads me, but I want to know either way. The last kind of question I have. So I think that another comment that I received a lot was, you know, what if it essentially gives a false positive? Where are you guys at? Like, do you have any sort of percentage or is this something that people should be concerned about is getting a false positive? And then where might that go in the future if there are some false positives now? Yeah. So, you know, our goal obviously is to minimize this as much as possible. It's sort of a, it's a, it's unfortunately a, um, question that is much more applicable to diagnostic um, tests than it is to what we do screening. So in screening, we actually risk stratify everything that we see. So let's say we see something in your liver and we look at all of our little filters. That we, you know, Remember, we had filters for blood and fat and fluid. So one of the most common things you might see in a liver is something called hemangioma. And it's a Actually, think of it like an internal birthmark. It's been there your entire life and it's not going to do anything. It's totally benign. So that has a certain picture to us. And if, and if we identify, you know, if we identify the signature of a hemangioma, we say, this is a hemangioma. This is very low risk, benign. Don't do anything about it. Um, and then there are other things at the other end of the spectrum where it has 
concerning features where we know that you need to do something about it. And that the sort of thing that we're always working on as a company is how do we minimize the bit in the middle, the stuff we're not sure about. And because you're not sure about it, you kind of might want to do some, we, we need to do some tests, but the test may not lead anywhere. And if that middle category is too big, you know, it can create a lot of anxiety and it can create a lot of, um, you know, uh, potential sort of unnecessary costs to the system. So our singular focus is on making that category very small and all of these filters enable us to really do that. Typically at the, you know, more often than not, if something is in that middle category, it's just too small and very tiny. And because, you know, things tend to change at a relatively small rate, often the thing that you need to do is just check again, next time you come in for a scan. So uh, we're not really seeing, you know, it's not really an applicable question for screening. Um, the more interesting question is like, what's in indeterminate in the middle category? And we work really hard to minimize that. That's a great point. And yes, you guys do. I mean, again, I think as you learn more, it will continue to improve. But as a individual who's had quite a few MRIs, Pranuvo definitely was the least anxiety inducing for sure. So, um, well, thank you so much for coming on. It was great to chat with you again. Yeah, likewise. I'm really excited to, um, I really hope we can bring this to Cleveland. I I, absolutely, we're going to definitely move on our end. It's a perfect combination for what we're doing here at Live. So, um, and then, you know, I can just walk next door and get my annual scan. That's awesome. It was really great to (laughs) chat. Thank you again for being here. Hacking was created and is hosted by Kayla Barnes. This podcast is for informational purposes only and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Kayla Barnes, does not accept responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of the information contained herein. Opinions of their guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical issue, consult a licensed physician.